Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Joining us today on this episode of the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the X's and O's, is coach, speaker, author, and mentor, Randy Brown. Randy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, let's start the conversation you know, with just kind of an, an overview of, of your coaching career and maybe some influences, some people who helped kind of shape you uh, in your coaching. Wow. You know, when I was eight years old, I was at a high school basketball practice. And I knew that day, I didn't know that day I was going to, that I wanted to be a coach because I really didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> I thought it was just a great, a great thing to do as a kid. But I saw these giant guys out there that were high school players that looked giant to me and a coach that was orchestrating things with this deep kind of authoritative voice. And boy, I'll tell you what, he was a friend of ours because my dad was the sports writer in our town, Fort Dodge, Iowa. And Dutch Huseman was the head boys basketball coach at Fort Dodge Senior High School. And there was just something about the way he went about business. I knew I loved basketball, but it just really kind of cemented some things to me. And I, I don't remember beyond that ever thinking about doing anything else. And that was a huge point. Uh, for me as a youngster and you know moving forward there is no question that that Dutch is a huge part of my life and my decision to be a coach in the first place and so I always have to uh, be very mindful of of mentioning that when I speak about those that were influential uh, I was I was told by a couple local coaches that what I should do is write letters and reach out to successful coaches in all sports in our state. And softball was big. We didn't even have volleyball yet, but softball was big and basketball was big and football was big. And I knew of some college guys, but not really. It was more at the high school level. And boy, I wrote and I got letters back and I began to form my uh, philosophy, if you would, knowing what I believed in or didn't believe in from those letters, from guys that, you know, are, are nobody would ever know, listen to this show probably just in our state that were phenomenal coaches. And that was big. The fact that you could be as a as a sports writer's son in the gym first and out of the gym last. <laughs> See, I already had that one down <laughs> as a kid. You know, my, uh, I, how lucky did I have it? You know, we'd eat dinner. My dad say, you know, are, are, who's going to the game with me? And I mean, he knew I was going. And so that was my education uh, for a lot of different things. Met a lot of people, saw a lot of things happen. Um, saw how excited people got about the game and how much it meant to them. And it just got in my blood. So I would say at a real local statewide level is where it started. And then some of my most impactful mentors, Don Grunewald, uh, for sure, Don Showalter, for sure, all high school coaches, 
Don Logan. There's three Dons in a row. Never put that together, to be honest with you. Um, there there are, are three right there. And, and those guys, uh, Paul Jones, who I worked with at Pleasant Valley High School, just tremendous. And they knew I loved the game. And, boy, I asked questions, and I was there, and I never turned down an opportunity. From there, to even get into anybody that anybody would recognize is down the road for me. But I had – those guys were very influential in the beginning you know, layers of my understanding of what this game was supposed to be all about. From there, obviously, the, these coaches have shaped you. And then talk about how you developed your philosophy starting, you know, starting from college and then at the different stops and, and, the, and the guys that you are the people you worked with, I, I am, you know, stealing, you know, bits and pieces. Who, who did you steal from, you know, who influenced you along those lines? Like I said, I, I think that probably at this point now, I had begun to create, like I said, a foundation. But I still, since I wrote everything down, I believed everything I heard, you know, and, and just and literally wrote every word like it was gospel. And so I, I didn't quite yet know who I was as a coach. I was just learning about all the aspects of the game. And it wasn't until I started working for coaches, well, actually basketball camps. Well, as, as, as I was leaving high school, going into college, you know how we, at, that's that era where we just worked a lot in the summer. And boy, those were great days, weren't they? I mean, I, both of you guys are smiling. Those were outstanding days. Uh, probably, as a student at the University of Iowa is when I really got serious about my philosophy in the game. And that's because Lou Olson was the head coach at the University of Iowa. And I would travel over to the Iowa field house across campus every afternoon um, to, to watch practice from a distance and hear just well enough from a distance. The great thing is you have Coach Olson down there. You also have Ken Burmeister, Scott Thompson, and Jim Rosborough. And these guys, obviously, Tony McAndrews, we're talking about all guys who became multi-school head coaches. Little did I know. Oh, my gosh. I'm learning from all of these guys. And, uh, and I did get to know Coach Olson on at, at, at a level, at a certain level, but I got to know Scott better. Scott was a, a friend of my brother, Rick. They had gone to school together. Uh, and, and, and Coach Burmeister, who, who, who didn't love Burmey, and um, he was just so easy to get to know and, and talk to. And So I learned from those guys, and, and that created the bulk of what I knew about the game. Uh, I, I revered those guys. They, they were they were kicking butt in the Big Ten. Uh, Ronnie Lester, Steve Craftsison, Vince Brookins, um, Steve Waite, Kenny Arnold, Bobby Hansen. Holy smokes, what a great – that's a Final Four team in 1980. And Lester gets hurt in that Louisville game in the semis. And and it, it, it was over for me. I mean, Lou Olson could do no wrong for me. And, he, man, he broke my heart when he left and went to Arizona. But – that's only the beginning of the story because I got to follow in three years later, <laughs> unbeknownst to me at the time. That was my goal, but I didn't know if that was really going to happen. So really, Lute and his guys, uh, without a question. And then I would say, 
listen, uh, every guy beyond that, you know, at all my stops and Arizona was my first stop as a graduate assistant. And so then I got two years in the fire learning about how Lute had done all this at Long Beach City College, Long Beach State, you know, at Iowa, being able to go to Arizona and start a program. And that thing happened fast. Oh, my goodness. Um, so they were in the 88 Final Four. And we, we won the pack uh, the first year I was down there in 85. And he didn't take the job till 83. So that place was on fire. And uh, he was my guy. I, I, I tell people kiddingly, I worked there for two years as a GA. The first year working for my idol in some a bit of a dream world. And the second year actually coming down to really coming to get my feet on the ground because he was bigger than big in the state of Iowa. And I, I just love the guy and a wonderful, wonderful person, family, uh, the whole thing. I, I owe everything to coach O for, for allowing me the opportunity to become a college coach and, especially at that level right off the bat. Oh my gosh. What a, well, what a dream. So yeah, the way he approached everything is, it was big to me. Coach talking about creating your own philosophy. You're surrounded by great minds. Everyone has brilliance, but things are different. How do you as a young coach know what's right for you. You get a lot of great input. It's all successful, but you've got to create your own identity. Right. You know, like if we were to look at championship videos, the biggest seller is whoever won the national championship. It doesn't mean it's right. How did you determine what philosophy was right for you? I believe, Jeff, that comes through years of trial and error. Because you've got to try it on, you know. It, it, it would be like, as you asked me that question, I'm thinking, if, if you took every, every company's best clubs, golf clubs, and they put them in a bag and they gave them to you and said, okay, go out and, and figure out which combination of these is going to be the best for you. Driver, irons, wedges, uh, trick clubs, putter. Uh, what, what, whatever the case may be, shoes, what, eventually you'd figure it out. But boy, it'd take you a long time because they all looked so darn good. Pressing looked good. You know, half-court offense, you kind of were figuring that out. Just how to run a drill, that, that you know, s- stuff like that. You got to get your hands wrapped around that or you won't know. And, uh, and so I think it's just trial and error. Uh, isn't it funny how when we're young and we don't know anything, we try to teach everything and sometimes act like we know it all too. As we get older, it seems to me the game shrinks and we start to realize what it is that we're actually good at or believe in to a point where that's what we're going to put our stamp on and leave a lot of other things go. And it seems to me that it should be the other way around, but it's not. It's a crazy phenomenon. And it gets, you know, you, you hear a lot of the a lot of the older guard guys talk about, well, we're keeping this game really, really simple. Oh my gosh. I, I remember coaching in, in summer camps and trying to do everything. 
and thought that that was, that was it. Cause I had all these notes of all these great coaches who had done all these things and without trial and error, I don't think, I don't think you ever know. I, I, I really don't. Um, Scott Thompson, well, I remember Scott Thompson being really instrumental about, hey, now, just because we're doing this stuff here doesn't mean, you know, in your job three years from now, this is exactly what you're going to do. You know, you're going to have to figure out what really is you. And and I loved that because I, I, and and it broke my heart because I had to let go of some stuff (laughs) because I wanted, you know, you wanted to do it all. So in time, I think it works out. And it wasn't until 90, you know, in the late 90s when I got a chance to be my head coach after all these years. And and even though I thought I knew exactly how I wanted to play, when I got to that point, there was really some work that I had to do yet, which is crazy for the amount of time I'd been around the game. But I think until we're called to to run our own show, right, um, like you guys have, you know, you get to that point, and you're like, okay, this is serious now. What am I going to do on this end? What am I going to do on this end? And time out with three seconds, the uh, ball in the backcourt. What am I going to do in this situation? So we learn. But I was just, again, so fortunate to be around some of the greats while I was learning. You know, when I was the women's junior college coach, the man down the hall was Gene Smithson, who was such a mentor to me and learned right. a lot of the game from coach. <clears throat> but I think those older coaches, one, we were better listeners, but those older coaches took pride in teaching the game to young people that wanted to learn. And yeah, we were learn it all. And today I think there are know-it-alls. But would you think back then some of those coaches were invested in you because you were the great student that wanted to learn? Was there, do you get that's changing in the game right now? I think so. I, I, and I don't, I, it's really hard to put a blanket on one and a blanket on the other, but I, I'm a very, very, very discreetly remember feeling like almost that, that these guys were like father figures to me. Some of those high school coaches I mentioned, the three Dons, I really, and they all, you know, they kind of all knew my dad, but that wasn't really the deal. It was, they were, it was important to them that they taught me how to conduct myself and they taught me how to put a practice together. And I I felt like it was their obligation, part of their legacy almost that, well, if you're going to be around this camp or if you're going to be around this clinic, you know, learn how to be a coach. Uh, When you say that, yeah, I I can, I, I really had that feeling do I have that feeling now? Not as much. It exists, but it, it it seems like it's more survival of the fittest. Like I just got the best job. I got to get the best good job I can get and just hold on to it as long as I can and maybe jump to another one. And, <clears throat> you know, with money, um, we, we could all state what our early salaries were, right? Okay. Well, when the money goes up, the shelf life goes down. And, and the way people go about business changes too. And I think sometimes the pressure and the money is such that 
really taking care and teaching those that are around us is put to the side for the thing that they feel like they've got to do, and that's recruit and win. And, and it used to be, um, we were t- talking off air about the Campbell, you know, the, the legendary Campbell College, uh, Campbell University basketball camp, and how those coaches, how can you get all the big name coaches in the country to come to that little gym and those little rooms, those little dorm rooms, and guys wanted a room together. And there was something about the game that was so precious that they wanted to take care of it and honor it and further it in the right way. I wish that was still as big as it used to be. It still exists, but guys, it's not as prevalent as as it used to be. So many things have changed. Money has the ability to change almost everything. And we're in such of a quick fix world now. And that, that just wasn't the guys got fired back then too, but it, it, they, they had more of an obligation to, I think the, the integrity of the game, as they say. And yeah, I agree. Coach. I think Jeff, when you yeah. said obligation, that was part of it that they were. And I was a women's coach. Coach Smithson was a men's coach. I had a lot of success because it was a little bit easier but I think it, he felt an obligation to really teach me the game of how to be successful and took pride in that. You know, maybe what are your thoughts like standing the test of time, Coach Showalter? Like he's really, you know, and, and a lot of people won't know the backstory. They just know USA stuff. today. But yeah. how has he been able to adapt from when he started to the modern day me type of kids. <laughs> that, that probably is a great question for show. But what I can tell you is that he has not flinched in his commitment to personally teaching the game the right way and passing its importance off to everybody that's around him that comes in contact with him. You know, I and I, I always say, and I used to be able to say this almost across the board. Hey, write him a letter. Okay, he'll get back to you in time, and it'll be a great letter, and he'll teach you something. And I can still say that about a show. You can't say that in a lot of situations anymore about go ahead and write somebody. And that's that's one of the things that I took pride in in our in my mentoring group. My mentoring program I ran for 11 years. I'm not currently running it, but just that 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 personal touch of of reaching out like we all used to and write write letters, write notes to to coaches. And show has has hung on to that. And it's so appropriate that he's where he's at. And people have, you know, he's entrusted uh, with a with a giant project there. And he's the guy, I can't think of a better guy in the country to to be in charge and be at that level for sure. But he's, he's hung on to that big time. And I still tell young guys to contact him. Yep. And they always hear back. <laughs> now we're going to have to make sure we get him and you together and share stories, but it's almost the tradition you talked about with summer camps. Some of my best memories were summer camps. And when I crossed over to the women's side, the Kathy rushes and just, the camaraderie at 
it didn't matter what level you were, if it was high school, college, etc. But it was a chance to not only improve your knowledge, but just to take everything in. And, and now with all the recruiting camps in July and everything's gone crazy. But I think, forget the kids, coaches, young coaches would benefit so much from some of the camps that we grew up in. Layson and I are going to do a podcast someday of Five Star versus Snow Valley and some yes. of those. Yes. But yes. Is, is that just loss? It's sad. But young coaches, they don't get what camp really was. Oh, no. Oh, no. You know, now we have camps that last a day and a half, and you're done by 4 o'clock. So let's talk about Snow Valley, okay? which started out west, right, with, with Coach Wooden. And if, if I'm not mistaken, is it Herb Livesey? Yeah, Herb Livesey and, oh, I can't remember all, some of the other names, but yeah. Herb Livesey was, was definitely involved uh, with that one. Don was involved way back then. And that's why you have something called snow in the middle of Iowa in the summertime. <laughs> well, Tate's and, Lock was involved with it as well. Uh, Tate's, there you go. I knew there was somebody else we knew about, and so I think they had um, Dave Slawbaugh is uh, the coach at Cornell is now running that. Who's a who's a Showalter disciple and doing an unbelievable job with Snow Valley. Uh, but Show is still involved, and of course we lost Jerry Slykus, and uh, Slyke was a major part of Snow Valley too, and. Unfortunately, lost him a few years ago, um, sadly. Uh, so at their camp, I believe they had five weeks. I want to say they had five. They either had four or five, and they were all sold out. We're talking in the 300s. Now, what kids around the country don't know is if you go to Snow Valley basketball camp, it starts at 7 or 7.30, and that's after you've had your breakfast. Okay, so they get thrown in this time tunnel. <laughs> that they don't even know <laughs> that they're getting thrown back into the way we used to do things. But here's the, here's why I bring this up other than, than giving them props because it's well-deserved. So that day it's a long day and it goes all the way to dinner and then you come back and then it's a lot of play and a lot of, then a lot of teaching all the way up until about 10 o'clock when those guys walk across campus and collapse and get ready for the sleep and get ready for the next day. You know what the coaches do? They return to the gym and they have a big room set up uh, with a screen and they have a clinic series that goes on during the week. Now imagine that for a young coach and you know, you'd say, Oh, I bet those young coaches hate that after that long day. No, they don't. They love it. A lot of them have told me that's why I go. They go, sometimes I can't, I, I don't lay down because I'm not going to get back up. <laughs> if I can stay on my feet, I'm walking back over there at 1030. And I've sat through those. I love going over there and just and, and hanging out for little periods of time and, and meeting new coaches, meeting young coaches. And they have clinics that last as long as guys want to talk. And then some of them walk across the street to the uh, sports bar across from campus and they continue over there. And it's, it is, it's a time tunnel. It's crazy. And, and what, what love for the, what love for the, um, 
the, the game, you know, has, has exists for those young guys and the older guys who run that phenomenal. It really is. It's a great model. And yeah, it, it's, it's too, you're right, Jeff, it's too bad. And it's hard to put, you know, our finger on one thing or maybe even a couple things that have happened over the course. We're talking about the course, I mean, of, of, of our careers and the time that we've coached until now, you know, we're talking 40 some years, right? Well, that's a lot can happen in, in any part of our society and our world in 40 years. But gosh, the, the, this game has changed a lot in 40 years. I just wish that we could, we could hold on to, to making the integrity of the game something that we're proud of making sure it gets passed on. Randy, you you talked about mentoring, and you know your your program was a a, a phenomenal model of, of what young coaches could get from sitting down, you know, and working with an experienced coach. It, with the, as long as they had the willingness to learn and, and to ask questions and be open. So, I, two questions: Number one, what should a young coach look for in a mentor? And number two, what is the mentor's role? and helping young coaches. Yeah. And, and, and the word, let me, let me speak of the, of the word mentor for a second. And so when, when I had my program, elite coach mentoring, it was specifically designed for those. It it was career oriented. It was specifically designed for those who wanted to do exactly what I did and, and have a chance to become a college coach. And I thought it was very interesting that becoming a college coach is one of the things that you can't learn. There is no scripted course. There is no scripted manual. It's not a course in college. It's not a minor in college. What they do is they have you, you know, do your, do your ankle taping. Okay. And take your classes and you can do that on a weekend and be qualified to be a coach in terms of being certified, which is a far cry from what we just explained uh, that we went through. But, uh, you know, but, and, and so I created it because of the rush I got when Arizona called and, and said that they wanted me to become their, one of their graduate assistants that next year. I wanted to replicate that for other young coaches who actually didn't have a flipping when they called me or emailed me to say, I want to be a college coach. And it was really, really interesting to hear in their mind what it was going to take for them to do that. And my program was based probably three-fourths of everything we did was based on the fact that it doesn't matter who you know. The only thing that matters is who knows you. And, And when that shift takes place, it's like, Okay, write down all the guys that know you on the on the Division One level as head coaches. And when I when they tell me it's a blank piece of paper, I go, "If you're willing, you're going to make this happen, and maybe really quickly. If you're willing to to listen and, and willing to learn, because a lot of people are going to get to know you in the next twelve months." And that's what we did, and they bought in, and and uh, we had really proud to say we had 130 of them go through the program. And, and enter uh, the, the collegiate field um, as men's or women's coaches. At it, We really didn't worry about titles. I didn't, I devalued that big time because just to get in is good, right? 
get your first business card printed and you're set, you know, you're a college coach. Uh, And eight of those guys have have risen into the NBA at, at certain times, some are in there right now, but because they got it and, and when they got off on their own and started to work their way up and that's really cool. Um, So that was kind of my definition of mentoring. The other definition of mentoring is probably the one that we have been talking about. And that's how does a young person learn how to become a coach. And it's not about the X's and O's. They think it is. It's not. It's not about the way their high school coach did it. It's not. It's about so many other things. And uh, in our state, here with uh, in, in Iowa, with the Iowa Basketball Coaches Association, um, we are, are really proud of, of having started a program. It's just in the second year, but we had great participation last year and what we did is is we asked for volunteer mentors who who are either current coaches in our state or no longer coaching but have tremendous obviously experience uh, to volunteer to be a mentor and then we identified throughout the state mentees that we thought would be good uh, thought would need it. And we even reached out to all the athletic directors in the state to say, do you, what new coaches do you have? And if you've got one that you think could really benefit by this program, let us know. And then we match them together. And then we have a very uh, pr- pretty detailed protocol on when we contact and c- kind of what are the confines of, of the mentor mentee relationship? How can we help them? Um, uh, you know, just some guidelines and it's been phenomenal. Um, you asked what do coaches need to know, uh, in in order to get a a mentor? Well, one is they need to leave their ego at the door and be open to having someone work with them. Uh, and, and, you know, we we feel good about all of our mentors because they're going to do it properly. Um, they're not going to be, you know, Hey, I did it this way. So you got to run this zone and you got to do this and you got to do that. We're not talking about that. Uh, but it is, it is kind of a phenomenon that I don't understand, but there are a lot of young coaches in our state and everywhere that are a little standoffish about being mentored. And I don't know if they're intimidated. I don't know if they think they already know how to coach or, you know, in their mind, they think they know how to coach. Uh, it's um, the NABC, thankfully, has taken on the project with the help of the uh, Women's Basketball Coaches Association. They have teamed together. There's an upcoming um uh, there's upcoming program for programming for that, but but as a member of the NABC, you can be mentored uh, if if you apply for the program and, and you're accepted. Um, and, and it's it's a pretty easy application process. Um, I've applied to be a mentor. Um, anybody out there that that's hearing uh, the program, um, understand if you're not a member of the NABC, it would well be well worth your while. If you consider yourself a coach, you should be a member of the NABC. There's no question. And your, and your state association also, but then get involved, get involved. And I don't care. You know, I don't want to hear, I've been coaching six years. I really don't need a mentor. That's the kind of, that's really the kind of mindset 
that will inhibit. You talk to anybody in any industry. Okay, let's just talk about business. Okay, a guy that's in six years telling somebody he doesn't need a mentor because he's he's got the world of finance figured out or he's got the world of whatever figured out. I know it doesn't fly in other professions and it certainly shouldn't in coaching. And it is a really, really a powerful dynamic that goes on between mentor and mentee. And and I'm proud of the work that we're doing here in Iowa. Um, Don Logan is our has been in charge of this for a long time. Is really one of the stalwarts in in state basketball coaching associations in the country. He's on, been on the national board forever, and uh, Logie's unbelievable. But uh, Jeff Schurz, uh, the, the coach at uh, uh, Ballard, is in charge of our program, and and we actually have committees within our executive committee, and one of our committees is mentoring. So we actually have a committee that's in charge of of creating and and really working this program. And Jeff's Jeff really took the reins with that. He's done a phenomenal job. And you know we talk about we talk about this whole thing about officials and and how how they're getting hard to get and then keep in the profession. And the same with young coaches. It's kind of a it's a volatile thing for a young coach. To come out of college and be a girls coach or a boys coach, not even a head coach, but it could be just an assistant, but it could be a head because they get thrown so much at them that has nothing to do with basketball. And then they end up saying, who wants to do this for this little paycheck I'm getting? I'm not about this. I mean, you really got to be into the game. They kind of scare you off. And that's heartbreaking. Because it shouldn't be like that. It should be about the love of the game and how much you loved basketball yourself and how much you love teaching young people uh, the game and all the lessons that go with the game. So maybe mentoring can help preserve some of that. Um, And again, last thing, I would encourage anybody that is in a state association or just has an interest in what we're talking about with what we're doing in Iowa, please contact me and we'll show you everything we're doing. We'll give you the, we'll give you the plan, give you the template. We'll show you how we put it together. And it's actually, we've um, at um, uh, iowabca.com, we've on our website, anybody can go there and just click under the mentoring tab and and look and, and see some of the things that we're doing. They could easily do that. So, it's a great program, and we need it in our game. That's great that you're continuing to 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 invest in other coaches, which you know you have you've done for me, you've done for others that that we know. And uh, I want to also make sure that we let people know that you know you, there there are resources you have resources available that we want to make sure that we talk. You know that you know we could talk about you know the, the fast track program, but also your networking program, which is, is something that. Coaches here, well, I need to network, I need to network, but it's often done the wrong way. What are, what are your thoughts? <laughs> My thought is when I hear someone say, well, I gotta, I'm working hard to get my name out there. And I said, I'm curious because I don't really know how to do that. Uh, tell me how you're doing that. Because it's one of those things that we say, but we just say because it sounds good. It really isn't a thing. How do you get your name out there? What is that? And I challenge them. I mean, I don't, I don't have answers for people, 
but I have challenges and then I have my, the teaching I do within the response to my challenge. And that's when I can best do my work. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, we don't, here's, here's what's real. I think really sad are the, and I love doing this in a coffee line, waiting for my coffee is, is if I see someone who's about college age, like, like they're in college or maybe just out of college, I'll ask them, um, are, are you still in school? Yes. What are you taking? That type of thing. Um, is there a networking course you're taking? And they'll say, no, they say, well, they kind of talked about it one time a little bit in my business class. You know, you, you guys know, you know, the push about personal self-finance, you know, that, that, that's being made in our country into our educational system, which makes total sense. Why that wasn't there at the beginning, I don't know. But it's they've made a lot of ground. The same should be done for networking. Here's why. I'll talk to some guy or some gal and they'll say, yeah, I've been out of school for a year. I haven't been able to get a job yet. I, I just... I just don't think I know enough people because when I go to the interviews, I do well, but somebody else has a connection to somebody and they get the job. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, that really stinks that we have spent how much money to get that degree plus a year and we can't get a job because we don't know the right people or the right people don't know us. And we haven't learned how to play that game. And I could teach it 24-7. Man, I'm telling you, it is. I, I love teaching it because it makes so much sense. Um, if you if you're trying to get a job out of college or you're trying to become a coach, and there's ten people being interviewed, and it is certainly isn't about being nine out of ten. If you want to be in that group of nine, go ahead, dress like everybody, talk like everybody, answer the questions like everybody, have the same portfolio, or don't bring a portfolio. Um, don't do the special things to set yourself apart. That's what it's all about. And if you do, you can become one out of 10. So that's always my deal. Figure out what everybody else is doing and do something else because you got to be one of 10. You can't get a job being nine to 10 or they got to, they got to hire all nine of you. <laughs> And there's only one contract on that head coach's desk. <laughs> so, oh boy. Uh, yeah, I've had some great, I have some great stories of young people who have come to me that wanted to be college coaches. And I, I have never told anybody no. I have told people it, it just isn't, it's not in the cards for you and I to work together. Uh, a kind way of saying you, you so far are out there, it's not going to work. But I've had some cases where you would say, there is no way. And I've said yes, because I knew, I just knew in a quick phone call that they had the heart for listening and wanting to do this. And networking is great because you can build, oh my gosh, quickly, quickly, exponentially, the numbers can start to rattle. And, you know, two becomes six, becomes 42, becomes 127, just because I know Layson, Layson knows Jeff, Jeff knows Bill, Bill, right? I mean, the same old, and that's what it is. So see, you, you get me going and I, I, I want to, I want to teach for another hour on, on this. It's simple, but it just, it, it takes some common sense and some work, but I could teach it to anybody. I swear I could. And I can't say that about anything else. I don't think.
uh, but I can really teach this. And that's the key. That's the key. Coach, before we get to your book, if I sat with all of the players and lives you've touched, what would be the non-basketball, the DNA, what would they say you left on their hearts? I think that I know that you would hear them say that my office was one that they felt secure and safe to come into to speak about the things that they needed to talk to, to get off their chest. I, I think that's the mark of, of a coach who has illustrated that this game is not about making baskets. It's not about making all league. It is, it is a breeding ground for some of the things that are going to be in their life very shortly, you know, being injured, and in losing games. I mean, we learn the art of, of losing and being disappointed at a level that hardly anybody ever gets to go through. And that's priceless. Now, it also gets flipped around, and, and the great becomes even greater when it's really going good. But for them to be able to come in, I believe, and not necessarily talk about what's going on in basketball, that was kind of always kind of in the conversation a little but if they trust you, they will bring up things that they have not asked or told anyone. And when I hear that, that that's magic to my, that's just hearing magic, it's magic to my ears. That they would feel safe enough and confident enough to come to me and, and, and begin to ask questions about things that are really bothering them. And, and I think when you're in the business for a while and coaching kids at, of any level, you can tell when a, a kid's got a really bothersome day going or a bothersome week. And, it, but, and most of the time, it was not about basketball. It wasn't. That became the thing that'd be easy to peg. Well, his, you know, his playing time's down. That's probably what's bothering him. And almost invariably, every time it was something else. And I've always said that when things aren't going good away from the floor, it's, you got to be a hell of a player to be a really good player at practice and at games because you're carrying baggage that, is, that weighs a lot. And I think it's really hard. Um, and conversely, the, the player that is able to, to come with a free spirit and a free mind and just that unbridled just enthusiasm because it's going good on campus and it's going good with their girlfriend and they've, they've been talking to their folks and everything's good. The salmon was good today. You know, they just say everything's good. And then, then they can play like crazy. So I would say, I would, I would think that, that that would be the one thing. And I know this for sure that when a player says, coach, I never got it until after I, after I got done playing, but I appreciate how hard you coached me. Wow. That's a and great in some cases, 
in some cases, it was coach me hard explanation, explanation, explanation point, like really hard. Or a better one is when the head coach has been very hard on a player. Let's say a, a, a head coach has got personal with a player. And for them to come in your office, and, you know, that's a thing. And, I, boy, young people need to hear this because we have a responsibility to our to, to the program, to our head coach, you know, to, to, to that head coach player relationship. Okay? We also have an obligation to that young man as a person. And you talk about delicate, delicately mincing your words <laughs> to get a message across to him to say, I know what you're saying. I was there. Um, I had to cringe a bit myself. But I know your makeup, and I know that it was done probably partly because of some anger, and that was not a very good practice by anybody. Um, but you have to know that everything that's, that's done in, in a direct way to you in this program is done for your own good. It just may come off like that's not the case. And when it does, get in the office of one of these assistant coaches. And I tell them that in our time when we're behind closed doors in my office, it is a tricky thing to do, <laughs> but it has to be done delicately and it has to, it has to be done with integrity, you know, because you've got your head coach and you, that whole responsibility and you've got that young man who's really hurting inside. And boy, when they come back after they play, I think that is why we coach. I think that's why we got paid. Because think think of the lessons. Think of the lessons that our players learned in all the years that all all three of us have coached. That that they took with them silently. They just learned them right on the fly during their time with us when we coached them. Then they got married. Then they had a family, and then they're coaching their third grade daughter in soccer. And the comments when they come back are just hilarious. First of all, coach, it's impossible. How could you ever be a coach in college, let alone in third grade soccer? You know, now they realize how hard this stuff is. It's funny and we can laugh about it. But when they come back and say, you taught us all these lessons, uh, the, the staff, and I, I didn't really know that was going on. I just thought we were playing basketball. He goes, I can't believe how many times in my life it hits me, like driving to work in the morning that, oh, yeah, I know. Now I know where I learned that, you know, and boy, it's good to hear that. That that's the coolest thing I can ever hear. It, it's amazing how records and accomplishments fade a little bit as time goes. And it used to be so important to me. I'm almost ashamed at how. You know, there's things I wish I could do over because I made things too important and they weren't. But you can't learn that then. You got to learn it later, I think, for the most part. And it means everything to me when you get that feedback. I think that's what coaching is all about. I really do. Randy. We want, we want to invite you back because we want to go into depth about the book and, sure. and, and give you as much time to talk about it and us to okay. really, you know, awesome. to, to talk about it with you. But 
one thing I, I, I want to ask now, and, and I, want, I want to encourage our listeners to get this book because it's a book about redemption. Mm-hmm. It's a book about courage. And it's a book about hope, which are things I think that we do not have enough of in our lives. Right. But one of the things that bonded you and I was the fact that we have shared the loss of a child. Yeah. And I know at the time I didn't have any a coach to reach out to. I didn't have anybody to, that could understand what I was dealing with at that point. And, and it was dark. I, it was dark days. And, you know, I know some people, you know, they try to comfort you, but unless you've gone through that, you don't, you don't truly understand it. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, we can, we can discuss more, but, what would you say to the coaches who have gone through that or knows another coach or someone who's going through that? How can we help them? The hard thing to do is to talk it, talk about it, to break it down, and then to get really, really human about it. Why? Because it hurts. And who wants to do something that really, really, really hurts? I've never got run over by a semi 18 wheeler, but it can't hurt a millionth of as much as the pain that you and I have faced. It can't. There's no way. My answer to that question is, I think if if you belong to a church or if you belong to any type of faith-based community, there is a person there that to me is a would be a logical and a good person to start with. I did because I even my folks, you know, I, I thought my folks knew everything and I thought and, and I didn't go to them. I, I went to them to for comfort. I didn't go to them for um I, I did, but I mainly went to my pastor, and he was also a friend, so I really had a built-in advantage there. But, you know, if you're not churched and you don't have that kind of resource, we need to find people who can speak on common ground. And they can be, we just need to find someone who has lost a child or has lost their mother from cancer or has, you know, and the whole catalog of loss and find somebody that can speak apples to apples. It just means so much. And yeah, because, um, you know, a really good friend of mine, um, is, is a, uh, is a speaker, uh, and, and a, and an author to be, uh, uh, Heidi Dunstan and Heidi's in Canada. And she gives one of the best, talks I have ever heard in, and it's all based on people that don't know what to say in grief. Think about that. Nobody knows what to say. And so do you know what people do? They assume we know they're thinking about us, but sight unseen. It is a powerful program. And I'm telling you, that's one of the things we weren't taught either. Is is the right thing to say to someone who's in the middle in the in the midst of grief because we we're just so sheepish and and we're just 
and we're a little scared and we're a little fearful. And so what do we do? We stay away. And that's really tough on the person that's hurting that, that, that needs help. And boy, you just, you know what? I, I think when we go from comfortable, the only way to get back to somewhat comfortable is to go through this vortex of uncomfortable. That goes for athletics, becoming a player, but it, it certainly goes through grief. We hit, it, is, it is a son of a gun to go through grief. It's really, really hard. And what people do, a big part of my story, as you know, is my, my ability to make the decision that no, I don't want to go through it every day. I don't want to grieve health uh, the, the healthy way. I'm going to go find other ways to be comforted. And that did nothing but dig the hole deeper for me. And that's a major part of my story. But I also know because I've arrived on the other side where it is comfortable. But I had to go through that middle part. Holy smokes. So I, I would tell, here's, here's what, I, what I would say, Lason. I would say, if you know of someone that has lost a child, let's say, find someone that you can introduce to them. Because they, it's so easy to go into your shell, man, and just go home after work and close your door. A single person going through that? Are you kidding me? You know, so, and you don't even have to know the person who's going through the tragedy. But you find somebody that can help them. They need someone who can speak the same language. However it's manifested, however it happens, that is huge. Just absolutely huge. And there aren't enough grief counselors in our world. Um, there's too much stuff going on for there not to be grief counselors. And, you know, these poor first responders, I know a lot of them. And, boy, you talk about a tough job. But, boy, you know, the casseroles show up for about two weeks. And the cards show up for quite a while. But, boy, when those cards quit showing up, that's rough. Absolutely. And if you haven't built people into your life to naturally be there, to comfort you just as you would comfort them, there becomes that end point like, okay, everybody's on with their life. I remember thinking that. And I was so mad. Oh, that made me mad. Guys are going to work and they don't even, they, they forgot already. And so, yeah, I, th that, was a, that was a long answer, but. That was a great answer. You need people that look them in the eye and cry with them and hug them and say, I am here 24 seven. Here's my number. And you, I am not BSing you. You call me at 4.13 in the morning. That's what you need to hear because you're going to want to call probably. Let's, 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 let's get you back to, 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 for part two. I would love to come we, back. We will, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to yes, talk yes. about your favorite concerts. We, we've got some fun oh. questions because I know how much you love your music. Oh. So we got to bring you back and, and, and talk some music here. Um, oh my God! Well, let me at least ask this one, Jeff. Let me at least ask this one fun question, okay? <laughs> Randy, who is the one artist or band that you would love to spend time with and, and just hang out and just get to, get to know them? Well, I would love to get into Jimmy's head because what, what was going on in that head? Uh, last night, I just watched Star Spangled Banner from from Woodstock. So Jimi Hendrix is up there, and he's doing stuff nobody's ever heard before. 
And the guy, oh, I want to know what was going on up there. What was that? Well, what? Oh, my God. He lived that short life like all the uh, all the 27 Club, right? Did. But he, he's one that's always just tremendously intrigued me. Now, what a humble dude, too. He's really, really, he was really, really a humble guy, which is cool. I've read a lot about Jimmy. Yeah. So that comes to mind first, but there'd be a lot of them. But Okay, next question. Who, who played Voodoo Child better, Hendrix or Stevie Ray? Stevie Ray played his version of Jimmy's voodoo like nobody's business. I, you got to give it to the creator, but man, oh, I it, – <laughs> I recently, by the way, visited um, Alpine Valley. Oh, wow. And because I had done some research, I'm, I love research and I love rock history. Done some research on sort of what, what the, it's unbelievable how close they were to, to passing that, my, the, the hill. And I walked it and I, because I knew where it kind of, you know, where it went down and stuff like that. And, and Buddy Holly went down in Clear Lake, Iowa. And that's quite a story, too. But uh, these guys all lived with such passion, just like, just like coaches do with great passion. Love the game, love coaching, love winning, love to learn from losing, and love to teach young people. There's nothing better. Jeff, who would you, who would you pick? The, the one I was gonna, I'm thinking Buffett, but who? For me, if I got to spend a time, I would go with Buffett because I know I'm going to get great stories. There's going to be a couple pretty ladies, and I'm going to be drunk as a skunk. So it, it's it's what easy a great for answer. me. <laughs> what a Don't great tell answer. my wife, Coach, but yeah, it's easy, Jimmy Buffett. Hey, how about this? This is weird. So w- w- when I climbed, w- when I was at Alpine Valley not too long ago, you know who he's playing the next day? Jimmy mm-hmm. Buffett. He was on. He was. He was on premises the day I was there. Okay. Jimmy Buffett to me just seems like <laughs> an ordinary guy that we could all hang out with and have fun. I yeah. I know coaches, musicians, actors. Some become elitist, and some become just regular next door neighbors. And I, from even the stories I've heard, Jimmy Buffett's one of those. And yeah, I was gonna uh, say, wasn't he the one he lost? The, he lost his cell phone and had all the the names of like all these different celebrities and different people. Was that was that him? I I think I've heard a lot of great ones, and okay. I don't know that one. Yeah, yeah. maybe it was someone else that had Buffett. Either way, yeah. Well, we're gonna have to have Coach back for like part two, part yes. three, music, his book. Uh, it's going to be great. This this time has just flown by. It, it, it's really fun. Oh, my gosh. Has it and, ever. And I just wish young coaches could really take advantage of his offers to, to have a mentor, someone you don't know at all. You might think you do, but you don't. And, and ask for a mentor, and it's going to make the world a difference for you as a coach and for you as a person. Randy, where can, where can everybody, where can, where can you purchase the book? Where can, where can coaches purchase your content or, or, or reach, reach out to you? The best place they can go is 
myname.coach, randybrown.coach. I got rid of the this the com. I got rid of the this and the that. When they came out with that extension, code.coach, I was all over that one. So randybrown.coach, uh, the book, my email address, resources. And um, I promise you, when I leave the church on the way to the cemetery, there will not be a U-Haul with all of my coaching materials inside it, okay? I'm leaving those to somebody. I might as well give them to who's ever listening right now. In fact, I went through the process of scanning about 25,000 pages of coaching materials, and I've got them all now digitally in a in something about as big as my finger, which is really crazy. I had to. I had too much. I got tired of moving those darn things. But I, people got to take me up on it. They got to say, Coach, I need this, I need this, I need this. And then I send them 10 times more. They need it. I don't need it. <laughs> right? Exactly. All I got to do is get prepared for my next podcast with you guys. I don't need <laughs> any games, man. You know. So... But this has been awesome, man. What a pleasure. You guys are, 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 it's no mystery that you guys got hooked together to do this as a, as, as a, as a pair, because you guys are such givers of the game and, and our, our listeners don't know that because most of them probably don't know that, but um, you know, Jeff and everything you've done outside of your job for, um, for other coaches and resources and everything you've done there. And Layson, the same thing for you. I mean, tremendous giver. And if we're not givers, we're takers. And the world doesn't need any more takers. Absolutely. And you guys led the charge on that one. And I really appreciate you for that. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. Social media. media. media.